Hey friends, it's your pal Mike Shea from Sly Flourish here with another episode of the Lazy D&D Talk Show. In this weekly show, we talk about all things D&D. If you want to help support shows like this, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash slyflourish and signing up. Patrons of Sly Flourish get access to all kinds of exclusive material, as well as helping me put on shows like this. So yeah, I've got a lot of interesting things to talk about today, I think. Uh, I was actually just playing around with a bunch of them right before the show. So back in 2016, I did my last major poll of Dungeon Masters when I was doing research for Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master. And one of the things, I had a couple of open-ended, I had a couple of open-ended questions, and one of them was, what are your favorite tools for, for using for D&D? And the Microsoft Microsoft OneNote was high on the list, and there were you know a bunch of other Google Docs and things like that were on the list. But I think the number one by a good margin was Cobalt Fight Club. And for those who aren't aware of what Cobalt Fight Club is, Cobalt Fight Club was a way to build encounters online. So you could it had all of the basic information of monsters. It didn't have stat blocks, but it had like what environment they were from and what their creature type was, and certainly challenge rating and name and stuff like that. And you could say like, if I have five orcs and an orc orc leader, what's the challenge rating of that compared to my characters, which are like a group of level the three third level characters? And it would tell you whether or not it's deadly or whatever. It it basically calculated the math that the Dungeon Master's Guide recommended. But people used it for a lot of different things. It had a way to generate random encounters. It had a way to do encounters, encounters by environment. And, and a big deal is that it had monsters from sources outside of just the Wizards of the Coast sources. So it had Kobold, monst- you know, Kobold, Kobold Press monsters in there and it had monsters from a bunch of different sources in there. So you could select different sources that were outside of D&D and build combat and build, build encounters from that. People loved it. I actually never really used it that much, but I knew it was very popular. I had played with it a lot, but it wasn't a key piece of my, of my tool set. And last week, I think, or maybe two weeks ago, it kind of went dark. If you go to Kobold Fight Club now, it had a great URL, kobold.club. Whoops. There it is, Kobold Fight Club. It's empty. Right, the, the site still comes up, but you can't find anything in here. Right, nothing. There is no connection. So, as Asmore, A S M O R, is the person's name. I think one of the, I think is the creator. I think there's actually two people that work on it. And yeah, Ian Toltz and John Barilzi, Bur- Jabber too. They both hang out on Discord, and both of them said, like, look, this thing is a monster to maintain. And we just don't have the time anymore. It was a free service. It was a free application. And they cannot keep it up anymore. It's, it was too much work. There was something about they were hosting the data on, on, I think, on Google Drive. It was like a bunch of JSON files on Google Drive. And it required continual, constant and continual updating. They did put the code out on GitHub so somebody else can fire this thing back up again. Whether or not somebody will or not is a big question. So it's kind of a big deal that Cobalt Fight Club doesn't work anymore because it was so, like really certainly one of the top 10 tools for the last six years. And it was the, I think it was the number one tool. It was the number one like D&D focus tool. This is pre D&D beyond, right? But back then it was, it was a, it was a really powerful tool and it is, it is down. I think one of the motivations for them to kind of say, okay, I think we can step away from this is that the D&D encounter, the D&D beyond encounter builder is pretty, is pretty good on its own. And I agree. I was talking this with some of my, my my producer friends. They were lamenting the fact that the liches, they were lamenting the fact that it was going down because they used it to help publish stuff, right? Let's see. We want a regular lich. 
And we'll grab one of those Devarkin liches. And are there any other? Wow, there's not a lot of liches. We'll get a Mind Flayer lich. They're all hanging out. They're all playing cards. You know, hey, look, turns out that's deadly. So it was a really nice tool. The, the thing that it did is uh, it helped you very quickly calculate how they let you very quickly calculate the challenge rating of a monster like how how bad was it so like if we were let's let's you know for funsies let's talk about the characters here uh, manage characters and we'll say instead of our group it is four 20th level characters we'll make it five 20th level characters and say are three liches worse than five 20th level characters is that considered deadly and instead of screwing around here let's get rid of our devarkin lich and our mind flare lich and let's have a lich and a couple of balors Right. He summoned a couple of Balors. She, she summoned a couple of Balors, right? And that is certainly considered deadly. Although I don't know if it's going to be that deadly for 20th level characters. 20th level characters can handle anything. Isn't that tool piracy? No. So Cobalt Flight Club wasn't pirating because it didn't have the stats, right? You, it, it, it had like a listing for a Beholder and a Mind Flayer, but you couldn't actually run a Beholder or a Mind Flayer from it. It just told you what page number it was on, and it told you challenge rating and a few other elements. I guess there could be arguments about like, you know... But I don't, and they also weren't under the SRD. So then there's, you know, it, it's if, if you're not under the OGL, you don't have to play by OGL rules. Now you're just playing, I'm not a lawyer, but, you know, my understanding is at that point, if you're not using the OGL and you don't have to, nothing's making you use the OGL, you're using the OGL because it gives you things, not because you, you'd have to. And you're then under copyright and trademark law. And copyright and trademark law has different circumstances to it. Like you can't use the image of a beholder with the word beholder because that is trademarked by wizards. You can't, you know, there's a question of like, can you copy an entire stat block? Is it enough text to be considered a copyrightable piece of information? That's, that's different. OGL, sorry. So there's the open gaming license is a license that you can get from Wizards of the Coast to publish material for them. It's free and available for everybody. So you can, if you wanted to make a product and you wanted to use stat blocks that are inside the, the open gaming license and the system resource document, these are the two documents that make, make up the OGL. You can use, you can do them. And a lot of people do them. A lot of, you know, a lot of, a lot of people use the, the, the OGL and the SRD, but you don't have to. And if you're not copying information that's directly out of their stuff, you don't really need to. That's, that's kind of a key. So I, I only mentioned it because large facer groups banned mentioning they banned mentioning kobold fight club that's bizarre i don't think it was i mean i don't know but i i know it didn't to me like the question is could you use it instead of DD stuff and the answer was no because you still needed the stat block so i don't i mean i don't know what the legal issues are again i'm not a lawyer but i don't think it was copying enough information to really be considered a uh, a threat and i know wizards never david in seven years never did a cease and desist and that wasn't why they took it down they took it down because it was too much of a pain in the ass to maintain so, so yeah, JVC Perry says, but all of this is based on CR math and the adventuring day. I, I actually, I was having a, a conversation about the adventuring day with another, another designer who I love and respect. And I don't actually care about the adventuring day math. Like I, you know, the, it has that like one line that they threw away in the dungeon master's guide and everybody hangs onto it like crazy, but how many encounters are expected for an adventuring day? Who cares? It really doesn't matter. An adventuring day is an adventuring day, right? It's whatever happens during that day. It, it, is it 20 encounters? Is it one encounter? Who cares? Right? Like. It is what it is. So yeah, I don't I don't actually pay much attention to the adventuring day. I don't worry about it. And I and I recommend not worrying about it. I recommend worrying about your story and worrying about what happens in the story. And you know, that idea of like you have to have so many encounters to challenge a group of what level, I mean, who cares? You know, like we already know the math the math is all wonky anyway. So why are we paying any attention? Anyway, so yeah, so why even balance an encounter? Right. Good question. Why quote unquote balance an encounter? And that's what we're, we're going to talk a little bit about that. Anyway, it was very sad 
to see Fight Cobalt Fight Club go away because I knew it was like such a vital tool for a lot of people. We might see something come up in its wake. Of course, we have the D&D Beyond one. The issue with D&D Beyond is it only has D&D monster. It only has monsters that Wizards of the Coast provided. It doesn't have Cobalt Fight Club. It doesn't have, or not Cobalt, it doesn't have Cobalt Press monsters. It doesn't have stuff from these other, these other groups. And that's kind of a shame. This all comes down to the idea of like watching out when we rely on digital tools. And I talked about this last week with D&D Beyond. I worry that is D&D Beyond, D&D Beyond is a wonderful tool. It's really good. And it really does what it does very well there are limitations to it mostly in the content that they're willing to give you that they don't they don't offer up third-party content which is of shame but boy people love it and and i've talked with many players and i've talked with the people online and who and many people replied to the show from last week saying yeah my players depend on it right they really depend on dnd beyond i'm 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 not too worried because i know that we played a lot of dnd fifth edition without dnd beyond and i think we still could so you know i i, and I know people who do right i know who i know people that then they're not, you know, they're not PhD rocket scientists. They're just normal people that play D&D and they play with pen and paper or pencil and paper. So I think it's okay, right? I don't, you know, it bothers me a little, but it, but it, you know, it's okay. And I think that something we can keep in mind, something I try to keep in mind, and I don't like say that everybody should do this or whatever, like that. advice we know is BS, but I do think that we should be careful relying on digital tools. And if we see the game start to move down the line of like, well, we expect that you're doing it with online, that's a problem, right? I think that's a problem. And that's one of the things that I try to do. And one of the things I've done, and you will see this, those of you who uh, are, are so gracious as to pick up my next book, or those of you who support my Patreon and have seen it in the Uncovered Secrets. Note that a lot of the tools I try to create, I call them tools, they're not digital tools they're they're sort of head head tools are things that i try to make so simple that you can memorize them and you never even have to read about them again much less have a digital tool to help you out and the example i will give is i used to have on sly flourish and people still like it and i still have it there is the horde horde calculator mob damage calculator right so i have this little javascript tool that i created back in 2017 and you can say like, okay, what's the armor class of a guy? Let's say it's a paladin. He's got an AC of 18. How many creatures are attacking them? 20 creatures are attacking this paladin. The attack bonus plus uh, is four because they're skeletons. How much damage do they do? Five, right? And you hit calculate and it says seven of the 20 monsters, 35% are going to hit for a total of 35 points of damage. So if a paladin with an AC of 18 is getting attacked by 20 skeletons, seven of those skeletons are going to hit and they're going to inflict 25, 35 points of damage. If, on the other hand, they were making saving throws, seven of the monsters would succeed their saving throw. So this is a nice calculator to very quickly do the horde math that was inside the Dungeon Master's Guide. It actually is more accurate than the Dungeon Master's Guide. So you could say a cleric is casting Turn Undead with a DC of 16. They're doing it against 24 zombies. The zombies have a zero for their wisdom save because they're not very wise. It might even be minus one. So let's do minus one, right? And then we can ignore the damage. It doesn't matter. But we're just figuring out saving throws. We run it. We say four of the 24 monsters are going to make their saving throw. So boom, the, the thing goes out. DC 16, they're minus one. Wham, they are hit. And only four of the 24 monsters make their saving throw. This is a handy tool. Uh, people like it. It is nice. It, it fits on a mobile screen, so it works really well. It's a little, just a bunch of JavaScript I wrote, right? So people really like it. But I'm like, yeah, the problem is, what if you don't have this? What if you don't have a phone? What if this breaks? What if it's not right? Isn't there an easier way to do horde damage? So now I have switched to a new system, running hordes the lazy way, right? And I've talked about this. And again, it's, in, it's an uncovered secret in, in, for my Patreons, and it's going to be in the Lazy DM Companion. And it essentially says, 
if you have a giant horde of monsters that are attacking somebody, one quarter of them are going to hit and then just move that dial up or down depending on circumstances, right? And likewise, if you're going to have a bunch of zombies get hit with a turn undead, assume one quarter of them are, are going to succeed, right? In that case, it's like that's probably a little bit more than normally would done. And maybe you say, well, we'll do one out of five, right? So out of 24, we'll say four of them, four or five of them succeed. So it's easier, in my opinion, if you start with that quarter, one quarter of them succeed, and then you round it and you say, maybe it's a fifth, maybe it's one and three, right? You can move the dial in your head to determine, based on circumstances, how many monsters are going to either make their, make their attack and succeed or how many of them are going to make their saving throw. And I don't need a tool anymore, right? I don't need a piece of JavaScript. It's, I got it up here, right? I, I, re I read the article, I understand it, I tried it a few times, and now I've got it right? I don't ever even need to look it up anymore. So I like tools like that. I like tools where we can, where we can memorize them and we don't even need the book, right? Much less we know, like if we have it in a book, the book's not going away, right? No one's going to change the book. Or, you know, if I decide I don't want to get into D&D &D anymore, all my books are still out there, right? Where if you look at like Cobalt Fight Club, as soon as they decide they don't want to maintain it anymore, it is gone. It can't be used anymore. And that's a bummer. So, you know, my, I don't want to say recommend. What I do is I try to seek out tools that I know I can use even offline, right? And if you can use the tool offline, that's when you really own a tool. If you can only use it online, you don't really own it. And we don't own anything in D&D Beyond. We don't own any of that. We may have paid for it. We may subscribe to it. We don't own it. And it could go away tomorrow, depending on business, depending on business circumstances. So maybe tools you pay for it, not necessarily, right? Right? Tools you pay for can still go away unless you own it, unless it's sitting here. And even then it's like, well, maybe I can download it to a computer. Well, what if they'd stop making it? And what if your computer dies? Well, now it's really gone again, right? So, to, you know, the, the physical tools, I want something I can write down on a piece of paper or keep in my head. And that's why, even though even though we have Cobalt Fight Club and things like that in the Encounter Builder, I have the lazy the lazy Encounter Benchmark, right? And the lazy Encounter Benchmark, and I think JVC Perry, my friend, was in here saying that I don't worry about we don't worry about balancing encounters. We don't. I don't, right? And instead, what I say is you build encounters. The lazy Encounter Benchmark is also something you can memorize and it's very simple, right? And we're going to talk about the first step, right? Because people miss the first step. They don't do the first step. The first step is the only important step. Right. Step one, build an encounter based on the situation. Right. Your paladin is standing, your paladin and your cleric and your fighter and your rogue are standing on top of a, a hill and they're getting swarmed by skeletons. How many skeletons? I don't know. A hundred. Why? Because that's what the circumstances allow. Is it balanced? I don't know. I don't care. Oh, they're getting attacked by a hundred skeletons. Right. Like that's what makes sense in the story. And then you're like, is that going to be deadly? And you're like, I don't know. I don't know if it's deadly or not. Right. So then step two is figure out if that's supposed to be deadly or not. And we do it very simply. There, there is a, a, a basically two sentences you can keep in your head to determine whether or not an encounter may be deadly. It may not, but it may be deadly. It's, it's that little edge, like, is that over the edge? And it's very simple. It's, it's, it's not that simple. It's as simple as I can make it given the goofiness of levels and challenge ratings being different things, right? But basically what you do is you take all of the levels of the characters. Let's say we have eighth level characters. So there's four eighth level characters. You sum all of that eight, 12, 8, 16, 32, 40. Is that right? No, I didn't do that right. 24, 32, right? 32, 8 times 4, 32, I think. I think that's right. And divide it in half, 16, right? I know that that's correct because it's 16. So you have that number, 16, right? You take the, the total number of character levels and divide it into two because they're above fifth level, and that's 16. And then you look at the total number of challenge ratings of the monsters. And we said about 100 skeletons. I think skeletons are CR, are they are CR quarter or CR eight. I have to use my online tool to know. 
I could also use my book, let's just sit right there. Uh, they are one quarter, right? So now you sum up the total challenge ratings of the monsters. In this case, we have 100 skeletons, challenge rating one quarter, you sum it up, it's 25. Guess what? 25 is greater than 16. So 100 skeletons attacking four eighth level characters could be a deadly fight. That's what that tells us, right? The, the sentence we can keep in our mind is, an encounter may be deadly if the sum total of character level, if the sum total of monster challenge ratings is greater than one quarter of the sum total of character levels or one half if they're fifth level or above, right? I'll say it again, because I've said it so many times, I have it kind of memorized. If the sum total of monster challenge ratings is greater than one quarter of the sum total of character levels, or one half of character levels, if they're fifth level or above, the encounter may be deadly, right? And we can keep that in our head. You just one quarter, right? So you take the character levels, you divide it, in, you do it in four. Especially if you have four, then it's the level of the character, right? If you have four characters, which makes sense. But if you have five characters or anything, the nice thing about that math is if you have characters of different levels, it still works. If you have different numbers of characters, it still works. If you have monsters of different challenge ratings, that still works. You can, it, it flexes in all directions. We typically don't worry about the number of monsters and that could be an issue. And that's where the problem is. So, so the nice thing about, yeah. And so then Mika says, what about 10 plus? I bet you, you can turn that notch up again to three quarters of character level or equal to character level at 11th and at 17th. That gets really hard though. Cause that means like if you have four 17th level characters, then four challenge rating 17 monsters is just on the edge of deadly. And that's pretty deadly, right? So yeah, you can, you can jam that number up, right? And, and it works. But I, I, you know, generally we don't play games that high anyway, right? So if, you, if you're just looking at tier one and tier two, basically it's one quarter and then one half. One quarter of character levels below, four, uh, fourth level below, one half of character levels if they are fifth level or above. So you can keep it in your head, right? And what, uh, that's why I like it. I like tools that are simple enough that you can keep in your head. Now, the funny thing about that tool, when I talk about it, and I get comments on, I have a video on YouTube where I talk about this. I have articles on my site where I talk about it and I have an uncovered secret. So I talk about this in Lazy Encounter Benchmark all the time. By the way, it looks like this is also what the N-World um, Insider, uh, they, they, then what's it called? So N-World has a new fifth edition RPG that they're doing and they put out a preview of their encounter building guidelines and they're using the same thing. Uh, now, that was done by the guy who did uh, Blog of Holding, who has spent a lot of time thinking about the monster math, came up with it. And I think that's cool because it kind of confirms like, hey, these are two people who thought a lot about encounter building who both came to the, roughly the same conclusion. So I think that's great. But one of the problems is it's a two-step process. And step one is so easy to describe that people skip it, right? And step one is build encounters that make sense for the situation, right? Start with the story, start with the story. What encounters make sense first? You don't build a budget, right? This, the, the lazy encounter benchmark isn't a budget. It's not a way for you to buy monsters based on challenge rating. If you know that like, okay, I know that because I have four eighth level characters and I know that they're above fifth level. So half of their total character levels is about right for deadly. That's 16. That means I have 16 challenge ratings worth of monsters I can go buy and then throw at them. That's not how it works right? It's not going to work that well because if you throw a single CR 16 monster at them, that might be too hard for eighth level characters, right? And there's, there's a bunch of things where that doesn't work. So you don't start with a budget and buy monsters as, 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 you know, as sticky as that is, as, as, as easy as that is, as, as it's that, that, that process seems intuitive that you would build a budget 
and you would buy monsters based on the budget, right? Like that's kind of a kind of a cool way to think of it, right? That's not how it works. You start with the story first. The story determines it. And guess what? Two bandits, you don't have to do the math to figure out that two bandits are not going to be deadly, right? But if two bandits make sense for the, for the scene in the situation, two bandits it is. This helps you prevent building these blocks of encounters that are exactly built to just challenge the characters one right after the other. That's not how, and well, is that how it works? Some people play that way. I don't play that way. I don't recommend playing that way, right? What I recommend is story. What does the story dictate? If the characters are going to a noble's manor, not every guard there is a is a champion, right? They're guards. They're paid guard rates. They're probably challenge one. So if you have four eighth level characters that are attacking a noble's villa, they may not run into any opposition that's going to challenge them because the noble's villa doesn't have a big pile of superpowered monsters hanging out guarding their place, right? Unless they do. And if the story says they do, then they do. But you don't build budgets on this. And I've seen many adventures that clearly what they had done is started with the challenge number and worked their way into the story. That's not how to do it. So don't skip the first step. The first step is just build an encounter. What makes sense? What's, what's the situation dictate for what kind of monsters are going to be there and how many? And then figure out, am I accidentally going to kill the characters? So gaming and BS says, I think we need to get rid of that and just say encounter and allow the players to determine if it's common. Yes, I agree with that completely. I was having this discussion too when we were talking about the adventuring day. If you try to plan out your encounters based on the adventuring day to give them so many challenging encounters before the end of arrest, how do you know they're not going to cast invisibility and walk past it? And then are you going to feel like, man, they just skipped an encounter. Now they're going to be more powerful. And then I got to do this. Let the story dictate what happens. Relax, chill, just chill right? And let the story come out and, and keep your monsters here. You've got your big basket full of monsters. And when the scene and situation dictates, you take out the monsters that make sense for that given scene. And the other angle is pacing, right? So there's two angles that you should be paying attention to when you're building an account. I'm being very preachy. I want I, I know my caffeine, my coffee is not caffeinated because I made it myself. But boy, I'm a little jacked up. So two real angles. Angle number one, which you want to start with, in my opinion, is the story. What does the story dictate, right? And you go with that. The only time you should really change that is when the pay, it do, that doesn't support the pacing of the game. And what I mean is, is it too, is it gonna, is, is, is it gonna be like, man, one slog fight after another slog fight after another slog fight. It's late, people wanna go home, right? Maybe I'm not gonna run as many monsters as makes sense. Maybe it'd be more fun if there's only a couple because we can get through this a little faster and everybody can enjoy it and kick some ass and go home, right? That's pacing in one direction. The other pacing is, man, they've been having an easy time. They've been going through every hallway. They've cast invisibility. They charmed everybody. They've been avoiding everything. Now it's time for them to hit a hard fight. We're gonna turn that dial up and add more monsters than we normally would. So there are times when this, you should start with the story first. And if the story seems like it's going to be what's fun, stick with the story. But if you can tell that the way the story is going, this goes for all D&D, not just for building encounters, but it fits for encounter building. It's a good thing to wire into our heads. It's a good tool to wire in our heads that we don't have to use an online tool to figure out. And start with the story. And only when it's clear that the what the story dictates isn't going to be fun for the game. Either they just alerted everybody in the castle and 900 guards are going to show up, right? Not, how are you going to manage that? Like that? I mean, we have the horde rules, so we can run 900 guards. But is that really what is fun? And the opposite, right? Like sometimes that means we take battles that would have been really hard and make them easier. Sometimes it means we take battles that would be really easy and we jack them up a little bit, right? 
but we're doing it basing on pacing. We're doing it basing on the feeling. Like if they've had, a, you know, that oscillating beats of upward and downward beats, this is right out of Hamlet's hit points, right? Are we jacking, you know, we want to oscillating, you know, good things happen, bad things happen, good things happen, bad things happen. And I did this like when I ran the, uh, in Final Enemy, the adventure of the Final Enemy in Ghost of Saltmarsh, where they had a bunch of Zahuigan. And if you looked, it was like room after room of like eight Zahuigan bosses, right? And I was like, what if it's just two normal Sahuigan? Like, why, you know, not every room has this perfectly balanced set of Sahuigan that are just a right challenge for whatever level six characters or whatever they are. What if it's just two normal ones, right? And then the characters can decide, let's just hide and let them swim by and we all ignore them, right? Go with the story. So don't forget the first step. And the first step is go with the story. And you should always, I'm, I'm, when I hate, whenever I say should, I kind of hate myself, right? What has worked for me, the experience that I've had and, and, and the direction that seems like it works well for me and the one that I, I recommend is in all things, start with the story, work with what the story dictates, work, go, go with the flow, relax, f ride the lazy river of this story and see where it happens and then turn it when it doesn't look like it's going to be fun right? Either turn it to increase the threat, if that is what it will be fun, decrease it if it's time for a quick a quick win, or you want a role-playing scene instead of a battle, turn it the other direction. Go with the story. I've been having a lot of fun with Albert Rodeo. So I think just this morning, yesterday or this morning, Albert Rodeo put up a new video on YouTube. And in it, they talk about Albert Rodeo 1.10, I think it is. Which, of course, if you just go to Al so what is what the hell is Albert Rodeo? Well, I'll show you Albert Rodeo in a minute. But they put up a video. Albert Rodeo, let's start with. How about what's Albert Rodeo, everybody? Because a lot of people don't know about it. Albert Rodeo is a really lightweight, free virtual tabletop that does not require any accounts to run. It's my favorite VTT. I love it. And I love it because it's really, really simple. A VTT is a virtual tabletop. It is a way to play D&D Online maps and minis and, and, and display a grid and drop, drop tokens on it. And Albert Rodeo just does the visual. It gives you a map and it lets you manipulate miniatures. And all of their focuses, all of the things that they've changed over the past year, basically, I got, I think I've started using them about a year ago, kind of at the beginning of COVID. And all of their features focus just on how to manipulate maps and miniatures. They don't add rule systems on there. They're not, you don't, you, you know, it's got a dice roller in it, but you don't, you know, and it's a shared dice roller that groups can share, but it doesn't have any rule set on top of it, which is really nice. And it has no account requirements. And you can view it on a phone. You can view it on a tablet. You can view it on any PC because it works right out of the browser. Really lightweight, really nice. It's free, all right? All their features are free. They have a patron, a Patreon, and I suggest subscribing. If you use it regularly, give them, give them a few bucks. Cause as we just saw with Asmar and the, <laughs> and Gobble Club, it kind of hurts when you're doing a lot of work and you're not really getting anything for it. It's like a side gig. Right. And I worry about that with Albert Rodeo because you know, they could just decide, yeah, we're, 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 yeah, we can't do this anymore. Really cool. Anyway, they just put out a new version, lots of new features that are token-based features. And there's a 15 minute video. If you use Albert Rodeo, I recommend you watch it. I really enjoyed it. And before I had seen the video, I was like, you know, I was doing an encounter. I was doing the um, black cabin right outside the black cabin when they're getting attacked by, when the characters are getting attacked by a number of cold light walkers. And I was like, you know, I had this like blank battle map that I used and I just threw some cold light walkers. And it was, I was like, there's really no terrain. This really isn't interesting. And I was like, why can't I throw terrain on the map 
just like it's a token. Like, does that work? And so I bought some terrain on DriveThruRPG and I dropped it on and I'm like, wow, it works. It works pretty well. And then I started talking to people in the Discord, the Cyflares Discord channel about it. And they were like, hey, you know, there's free places to get these tokens too. And I was like, really? Let me try that out. And I did. And so the example that I'll show is a map that I set up with assets. So this is a blank map right? The, the whole area here. And then I put these bits of terrain on here, right? I put this whole wall, for example, you know, I put there, I put the, I wanted to put the black cabin on there. So we saw that it was there. All of these are just assets that I, that I threw on here and you can then, you know, so I put, I put up a map, I dropped the assets on there. You can see that I've got these things, right? These, these trees and everything. Uh, I got all of these assets from a place called forgottenadventures.net. I had only heard about these like a couple days ago, but they have tons of, they have a patron as well and you get a bunch of different options. Tons of different bundles of tokens and things that you can get, including a search. So you can say rocks. Oh, right, let's go to the live gallery. Oops, oh, what did I do? So you go to the live gallery and you're like, rocks. And you get all different kinds of rocks, right? All the things you want. And you're like, ooh, these are kind of cool. And you take it and you download it, right? We'll click save. Let's see, open in folder. And then you go to Albert and you say, I want to drop one of those rocks on there. And you go, boom, and you drop a rock. And now you got a rock and we'll put like a rock back here. Now that some of the new features of Albert, you can expand and, and shrink a token just by clicking on the left and right, which is really cool. You can rotate it you know, right off the thing, you know? So I don't know where this rock makes sense. We'll just stick it up here for fun these. You can then lock it, right? So now it can't be moved, right? The whole map moves, but it doesn't move. And then this thing is a essentially layers, right? You have character layer, you have a prop layer, which is sort of like a rock. You have a mount layer. Mounts are really cool. Watch the video. I'm not going to do anything with mounts, but they're really cool. And you have this, what's it called? Attachment layer, right? So we're going to make this a prop layer and we're going to lock it. So now it's like, I should have locked all these others, but I wanted to show how it works. So like, I should lock all this stuff. Whoops, I screwed up. Lock and lock. So this one is like two different things that I mashed together to kind of form this canyon, this fall off the side, because that's the way the black cabin is, right? And it's really neat to be able to just kind of drop that on there. You need to lock all these, right? Bang, bang. And then you've got your token. So then like we have our characters, right? You drop your characters on there. Uh, this was last week's fight. It was really fun, right? And you have your villains, right? We had Ravison, and we had Sephic Caltro, and we had the Orlo the Goliath, and we had Thumper. Where's Thumper? Is that Thumper? Did I get rid of Thumper? Did I lose Thumper? There's right the Cold Light Walkers, and that works really well. The attachment one was also neat. So I already did this, but like let's say. Our, this is, what's his name? Gore, right? So let's say Gore here decides he wants to cast Spirit Guardians, right? And he says, I'm going to move up. I'm going to stand on this big rock and I'm going to cast Spirit Guardians. We can take a Spirit Guardians template and lock it, turn it into an attachment, right? And now whenever we move Gore, the spirit guardians moves, right? And he could say, I'm going to move up here and I'm going to grind up those guys as spirit guardians. That I think is a really cool feature, right? That, you know, you can now have this sort of area effect that moves with people. You could have a lich and throw throw stuff on there. So neat stuff. I know I'm, I'm, I know other VTTs do this, but I'm lazy, right? I'm, I'm sure this comes as a surprise to you. I'm lazy 
and I like easy things. And this is easy, right? It was easy for me to figure this out. One nice thing is that like, and, and this could be a problem too. It's good. You can go to like a full screen, right? And really kind of blow it up. And we could even minimize that. So now we got real full screen. One of the things that I worry about is this a potential issue is like Albert had very few features when it came out. And that's when I just started using it. And they've been adding new features. And I've been learning about the new features as they each come out. But if somebody's brand new is coming into all of it, is it as intuitive as it is to me? I don't know. But I dig it. Uh, I really like this. I, I think it's a great VTT. I highly recommend it. Obviously, ooh, I moved a rock because I didn't lock it. I forgot to lock the rock. There we go. No, no. It's my faith. So that is Albert Rodeo and its new features. Check them out. Forgot oh, and I talked about Forgotten Adventures. So Forgotten Adventures is this site where you can go get anything. And I think it's even got tokens. So like if you do Lich, right? Yeah, look, like there's like Lich. Well, I guess that's Lich Lichen, right? But it's got some tokens, which are pretty cool, right? So that's, that's pretty cool. It, they do have like character tokens, but I, th I bet you have to pay for them. Um, anyway, really cool. Like as this feels a lot like the terrain equivalent of printable heroes. I haven't spent a lot of time with them yet, so I don't really know, but it might be very interesting on, you know, can you get character tokens here too? But boy, terrain wise, it's got a ton of stuff and that stuff works. That works really well. This ring, by the way, is an Arknight. So Arknight has a token set that I had gotten when I backed their Kickstarter long ago. And so I was able to pull these transparent, these transparent spell effects from Arknight games, which you can get on drive through RPG. I think it's 20 bucks for like everything, 20 bucks for a ton of different ones, flame walls of fire and all kinds of cool stuff. Really neat. So I also wanted to preview, as we know, I like to preview third-party products that, you know, you may not have heard of. Sometimes you have some, some, I, I they're not, I, I tend to pick ones that are pretty popular because I don't, I don't dive like into the deepest recesses of third-party published stuff. It usually takes a fair bit of work for me to notice it. I'm, this might come as a surprise. As a lazy dungeon master, I'm very busy. I do a lot of things and it's hard for me to see everything. So I learn about things kind of late. I knew about Call from the Deep. I knew about it before and I had owned it for a long time. And then I was asking a Discord and I was like, hey, what, what products, what third-party products should I talk about this week? And people are like, well, how about Call from the Deep? I was like, of course. Like, yeah, well, I should definitely talk about Call from the Deep. So what the hell is Call from the Deep? Call from the Deep is done by a one JVC Perry, who I believe is here, right? JVC Perry, you're here in chat. Are you hanging out in chat? I better not say anything mean. I don't plan to because it's a goddamn great adventure. So hey, he's here. So JVC Perry is here. So Call from the Deep is a Watsy level campaign adventure. Clearly, clearly they they were they were aiming for like the equivalent of one of Watsy's hardback adventures, and I think they did it right. I think they nailed it. I'd say the only thing that hurts it from this is the fact that I can't get it in print. JVC Perry, can I get it? Can I get it in print? I can say mean stuff about you, just not the adventure. I don't believe you can get it in print. And I would totally want to get this thing in print because it's really, really awesome. It's a 260 page adventure and it is it is excellent. So this the, the adventure, I was playing an adventure a couple weeks ago where something, you know, the adventure was kind of going down a path and I kept saying like, ooh, I hope it does this. And it didn't, right? It was like this really kind of fun, exciting thing. And you could tell, yeah, I know. Uh, so DM Guild actually prevents you, uh, the DMs Guild prevents you from doing print on demand for most products, which is a real shame. And uh, it means that it, that you you can't buy this in print directly. JVC Paris says, there's nothing stopping you from going to a local printer and getting a copy. So there's that. Oh yeah, I thought I saw Elven Towers maps in here. So that's cool. 
So one of the things that I think can happen is sometimes I think as creators and as uh, both creators as dungeon masters and creators of products, sometimes we see a cool thing and we go, yeah, we can't do that though. That's, that's, it's almost like, it's almost too cool, right? That one's almost too cool. Who cares, man? Go, right? Go with it. I'll, I'll give the example of like Inglorious Bastards. Can I, I'm going to spoil the movie Inglorious Bastards by Quentin Tarantino for a second here. You're watching Inglorious Bastards and you're watching this whole, this whole circumstance, bunch of characters all leading towards this big event. And the whole time they're all thinking like, we're going to, we're going to assassinate Hitler. Like we're going to kill Hitler at a theater, right? And two different groups are trying to assassinate Hitler in the theater, right? And you're, the whole time you're watching the movie the first time, boy, if you haven't seen it, stop stop listening for like five minutes. Go go get a refill on your coffee or something because it's a big spoiler. And the whole time you're like, they're not going to succeed. We know they don't succeed, right? We know Hitler's not killed this way. This is going to suck. They're all going to die at the end or something like that, right? And you're watching and you're watching and watching. And then they assassinate Hitler. And holy cow, do they assassinate Hitler, right? Like, yeah, Snark Day says, is this about them shooting Hitler in the face? And like, yeah. Right. Like all the characters, they, they, they kill like the whole Nazi party. They kill, they kill every major Nazi in the thing. And it's cause like Quentin Tarantino doesn't care. Right. Like he's like, I'm not doing a movie about history. I'm doing an action movie. I'm doing a crazy action movie about Nazis. And in mine, they burn the shit out of Hitler. Right. They kill the entire Nazi party. And the whole time that the, yeah, <laughs> grazie. <laughs> the whole time you're watching, you're like, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. And then it happens. You're like, that is awesome, right? Go with the cool. JVC Perry here in this book went with the cool. You know what's cool? Mind flare pirates. Lots of mind flare pirates. That's cool, right? Like let's have the whole thing. What, what I'm having really talked about the adventure. So the theme, the theme of the adventure is a Mind Flayer ship has crashed here. There is a elder brain that they're trying to keep alive and try to implant in something. And they do, this is full of spoilers for this campaign, by the way. I'm selling this to DMs who would want to run it. So if you are a player who's going to play in it, you should probably stop listening. But they're trying to implant an elder brain. They're trying to save an elder brain. And where do they, so where would you put it? I know. How about Slarkrathal, the 20th level spellcasting kraken that lives in the trackless sea? Yeah, it could be. It's pretty close to the most powerful monster that I've seen in the Forgotten Realms, right? It is really tough. I've run Slarkrathal a couple of times without a Mind Flare Elder Brain in its head. And players run. My characters all ran. I, every one of them ran, got out of there. They summoned a unicorn and sent the unicorn after it and then ran. So Mind Flare Pirates is awesome. But then putting an Elder Brain in slide, in slide inside Slarkrathal is good. And so this, the whole theme of this adventure is like, it's very, it feels Ghost of Saltmarsh, but way more epic than Ghost of Saltmarsh is because it's got, you know, crazy supernatural stuff. It's got all kinds of Lovecraft sort of themes going on there. It's got, you know, the whole, the whole purple, the purple rocks, which is really a very cool sort of uh, shadows over Innismouth kind of location. It's got Slarkrathal in it. It's got, yeah, all kinds of stuff. And so it's built in the major chapters that happen. It's a first to 12th level I think, I think it says 12th level here, but I thought I saw it say 10th level somewhere else. And yeah, very sea, seafaring adventure with big epic stuff that goes on. It is big. It is a 260 page PDF. So you get a lot of material for it. It is got tons of material. It really, so it knows of the other campaign adventures. It is built with a deep understanding of what happened in the other major Sword Coast campaign adventures and what the lore is of the Sword Coast and the region 
everywhere. So it is dripping with Forgotten Realms lore. That's an important thing I want to note when I get to my next topic. But really great, you, you know, the individual actual commissioned artwork. This is not just a bunch of clip art that, they, you know, or not clip art, but like, you know, this isn't like licensable artwork that, that he put in here. That he, It is filled with wonderful, unique artwork, beautiful stuff, really cool, really cool things going on. Slarkrathal is the name of the Kraken. Slarkrathal is one of the potential villains in, Sword, in, in Storm King's Thunder. I tell you, like for the people who felt like Storm King's Thunder's adventure was too loose you could take this and Storm King's Thunder and mash them together into a hell of an epic Sword Coast adventure. Huge scale, huge scope Sword Coast adventure. So I would, I would, I would, I think if I was running Sword Storm King's Thunder again, I would take this and I would, I would slip the two together. Um, yeah, it's very different. The only, the only comparison it has with Ghost of Saltmarsh is that they're both seafaring, right? And, and I've played both, but like, yeah. Ghost of Saltmarsh doesn't have Slarkothal, but Storm King's Thunder does. So I think that, you know, you could definitely weave a lot of material. Could you weave in Ghost of Saltmarsh material? Probably. I bet you could, because there's Sahuigan that are in here. There's Sahuigan in the other one. I bet you you could mash up, you, you could mash Ghost of Saltmarsh up too, if you really, if you wanted to have a big stack of material, if you didn't have a problem reading 600 pages, 700 pages worth of material, you could definitely pillage salt marsh could you pillage it for parts of salt marsh absolutely i don't see why you couldn't so i definitely think you can mix the two the mix the two together what else what else do i want to say about it it's really it's really cool it is available on the dm's guild it is a platinum bestseller on the dm's guild that's why i say like you know i don't really hit the things that people haven't heard about and a map is map there's a bunch of the extra stuff here too i haven't looked at uh, fantasy grounds if you want to get on fantasy grounds and it is 40 bucks so it is pricey for a pdf i will say that but if you if and you know if you plan on running it, you, you're going to get your forty bucks worth, and you can tell where the money went, right? Like it is not a, you know, money was no, you know, you can tell you can tell that they, that they put out, they put out the put out the cash to make this thing. Uh, good maps from uh, you use Dyson logos for for local maps, and it uses Elven Tower for regional maps. Lots of really cool local and regional places. Good kind of dungeon delving stuff. I didn't dive in. I haven't read the whole thing, right? But, you know, good dungeon delving stuff. Lots of places to explore. Lots of NPCs to meet. Lots of gross dudes like that. Look at that guy with his, you know, drowned Wolfgar. For a second, I thought, oh, my God, Wolfgar drowned? Right? Like, oh, poor Wolfgar. He drowned, and now he's got an octopus for a tongue. So really great. Oh, so JVC Perry has a tweet where he breaks down the pricing for the thing. That's that's nice. And so this is something that is hard sometimes for people to understand because we we live in an Amazon world, right? And I know this because like my books are now crazy expensive on drive-thru. Whoops. If we look at Fantastic Lairs. Oh, well, Grendel Root, right? If you want the hardcover version of Grendel Root now, it is 50 bucks to get the PDF and hardcover version of Grendel Root. That's actually not too unreasonable, really. $45 for the hardcover version alone, and, you know, and you're like $50 for that, but I can get, you know, dirt cheap adventures on Amazon. Why does it cost so much? And it's because it's more expensive for independent publishers to make this kind of stuff, right? We don't have the same economies of scale that other groups have. And, you know, it costs a lot of money to make, to make these things. Oh, it's more. Is that, sorry. Yeah, no, that's right. Yeah, right. Without the discount. It's always discounted. So, 
Yeah, it, sometimes it takes independent, independent publishers more money to make something because we don't have the same economies of scale. And we're not going to sell 100,000 copies. So we're not going to be able to make it back by, by shaving off the profit margin, right? It, it costs a lot. So 40, is it worth 40 bucks? I think so. It's really cool. I bought it, right? It's really, it's really, but yeah, I can understand people where it's like, yeah, 40 bucks for a PDF is a lot. It is a lot. But if you're going to use it, it's worth it. Like what, again, I'll, I'll go with the Teos, the Teos Abadia thought, Alpha Stream, right? Which is like, if you run it, how much is it worth then, right? Because how many hours are you going to pull out of this? A lot of hours. It's way cheaper than a movie, right? So like, would you preview it for 40 bucks? No, but you, you, you know, if you're going to run it, you know, or are you really going to be able to draw a lot of information out of this that you can use? And there's a lot of really good information in here. Then I think it is, I think it is worth it. Uh-oh, I froze my brow. Polenda says, I have a, I have a love sadness feeling about drive through RPG. For digital, it's great. For living in the EU, the print service is a no-go with the cost of shipping an extra VAT. Yeah, VAT is uh, uh, giving me nightmares these days. I don't know because I'm going to put out a new book and I want to ship it to people and I'm worried about the cost of the VAT and I don't know how to account for it. So I'm, I'm really, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm worried about it. A lot of really cool new monsters in here too. Uh, I was looking at it. They have like a, a Shogsothoth, what is it called? There's a, there's a Lovecrafty monster in here. That's essentially like a gibbering mouther. Look at these like mind flare pirate. Look at that guy. Isn't he cool? He's got water like going up into his eyes. So he, yeah, it's cool. Mind flare pirates, man. Really cool. Monkey. Great, great, cool book. That guy's, you know, Sea King Tentrix. Just awesome stuff. Really, really. A Shogoth? Is that what they're called? Yeah, Shogoth. Right? Oh, look at that thing. That's nice. Shogoth is like a psychic, you know, summoned madness. It's pretty much a, 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 like a powerful gibbering mouther. Really cool. So I highly recommend it. If you want to, I, I think if I was running Storm King's Thunder again, I would love to take this and Storm King's Thunder and mash them together, particularly because there's this whole like line between Slarkwithal and what's going on with Slarkwithal. The Storm King's Thunder and Ghost of Saltmarsh both have a lot of sort of Lovecrafty sort of angles. So you could definitely, you could definitely, I think, mash all three of them together into a really cool campaign. You know, lots of different, lots of different options in different places to go. Maybe even too much material, right? That's a lot of material to mash together and to, and to be able to, to, to keep people busy without having them spread all over the place. I've already been complaining about how Rhyme of the Frostbane has too many quests for first level or for, for low level stuff, you know, and, and here you'd be mashing all this stuff together. So it'd be kind of tricky figuring out what to keep and what not to. So I highly recommend Call from the Deep. So one of the things that Call from the Deep shows is how to get the real value out of the DMs Guild. I've been apprehensive and critical of the DMs Guild pretty much since it came out for a couple of reasons. And the, the, I, I think that some of the costs as a producer, and JVC Perry can, I would love to hear what JVC Perry has to say about this. I know he's heard me say it, but he's gonna hear me say it again. There are hidden costs as a producer. Mo they're kind of hidden right? Some would say, no, they're not hidden. You should know that. But some, I bet you a lot of people don't. And the, 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 when you think about what value you get for publishing on the DMs Guild, you get value. There are some things that are direct, absolutely clear values. And then there are some things that are sort of like fuzzy values. So the direct clear value is you can write with Wizards IP. You can write about the Forgotten Realms. You can write about Mind Flayers. You can, you know, and clearly, like, he put a Mind Flayer on the cover, right? So he knew he was writing about Mind Flayers. And he can't write about Mind Flayers uh, outside of the DMs Guild. They are they are considered WotC proprietary information, and they will give you cease and desist. I cannot put him in Runes of the Grand River or something else. 
So you can run that. That to me is the biggest clear advantage of writing for the guild is you can write with lots of IP and JVC Perry did. So this thing is dripping with Watsy IP in it. He got, he got a lot of value from that IP. And there is a lot of value there. You think about all of the value that exists from all that IP. Being able to write for the Forgotten Realms means you're sitting on top of millions of pages of material that, have, that exists. And you can do that you know, for free. Other values are there are art assets that you can get access to that you can't normally get access to that you could include, like a lot of stuff that a lot of the official printed artwork you can get and put into your books. Usually it's a lot of older stuff, but it's still art that you can't get anywhere else and you can put it in your book. That is a clear advantage for writing for the guild. And then there's a couple of fuzzy ones. Uh, fuzzy, fuzzy one, number one, is you're more likely to be able to sell 5e products to customers in the DMs Guild than you are to be able to sell 5e products on the dri on drive through RPG. And there are good arguments. I've, I've had people come back and forth about them. Now, the question is, is it really because of the two platforms or is it something like because it's easier to sell Watsi IP and you can only do it there? That makes sense. But, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't know that it's that clear because there's so many events that we don't hear about, right? This is survivorship bias. You could say like, well, I've, I've certainly sold more products on one over the other. That may be, but you might've been more successful than most people and you wouldn't know that on any platform, right? So... That's kind of a fuzzy one. It, it, it's probably likely that you are more likely to sell stuff to people, more, more people will, wanting to buy D&D &D stuff go to the DMs Guild than go to drive-through for PDFs anyway, right? So that's probably true. If you were to take an exact same product and put it up on either platform and it was a 5e-based product, you would probably sell more copies on the on DMs Guild than you would on drive-through. But like the 5e hardcore mode, which I've previewed here before, is on drive-through, not on the DMs Guild. And the question, would it have sold more on DMs Guild? I don't know. I'm not sure, right? We don't really know. You can't really tell because you can't really do a true isolated sample to be sure. It's, it's tricky. Uh, Christian Zuck, who's here in chat, and he and I talk about this all the time. And Christian brings up a really good point when he talks about the value of the DMs Guild. He's a very big DMs Guild publisher. I previewed a couple of products from him a couple a few weeks ago. And he brings up the point that if you write with Watsi IP, fo focusing on Watsi IP, particularly like new books that they're putting out, new products that they're putting out, you're going to do better because you're kind of riding off of the you're riding off of the slipstream of these new books that are coming out. So if you write stuff about hell right after Descent and Avernus comes out, you know, and you talk about it in the, in the sense of Descent and Avernus, you're going to get more sales there. So that's great. So, but I would I would argue that that is not as clear a benefit as, example, being able to write with Watsi IP, right? So I think that that's a question. Then the other thing that I, has always been a bee in my bonnet. There's always been a problem for me is that Watsi has said, this is how we find publishers for our stuff, right? They had the DM Guild Adept stuff that seems to have died off. Like there's not been, I don't think there's been any new DM Guild Adept publishing products in a long time. But there was this idea of like, if you write for the Guild, that's how Watsi will discover you, right? And I call BS on that. And I call BS for a few different ways. One was, numerous people who became guild adepts had never written for anything for the rest of the guild. They became guild adepts right away. And they became guild adepts because they were popular outside of the guild. They were social media people or they, you know, they were influencers in other ways and they became guild adepts, right? The same is true when you look at Candlekeep Mysteries, right? I, I haven't gone through all of the authors of Candlekeep Mysteries, uh, but I've gone through a few of them and not a lot of them have 
products on the DMs Guild or have substantial, have a, have a lot of products on the DMs Guild. They were cl clearly picked because they were popular in other avenues. So the idea that if you publish for the DMs Guild, that's how you're going to get noticed by Watsi isn't true, right? What is true is you could be noticed, you, you get noticed by Watsi when you're popular. I will throw other examples out there. Are they still around, the Guild Adepts? I don't think so. You know, nothing's been said, but I don't know. It took MT Black years to become a guild adept, right? Years. And only until Descent into Avernus was he brought on as an author. And he wrote hundreds of adventures. It took a long time. He was a best-selling DMs Guild author like years before he was working with Watsi, right? Which means by the time, this is kind of true with publishing in general, right? I've heard this is true with publishing overall. By the time a publisher notices you, you don't need a publisher anymore, right? By the time a publisher is, like publishers want money, right? And they want success. And so they don't pick bottom of the barrel, right? They don't pick people they've never heard of before. They want to know who, how you got picked, right? And so what they do is they, they pick people who have clear track records of being able to do it. Well, if you have a clear track record, that means you, you're doing it already, right? So I, I, it's always bothered me that people I worry, and this is one of those things where like, it's kind of these amorphous people, and maybe it's not a problem, maybe, you know, it's any of my thing anyway, but I'm bringing it up, that people think that they're, you know, if they want to be big in this industry, if they want to make a mark in the world of RPGs, they need to work for Wizards of the Coast. And if they're going to work for Wizards of the Coast, that means they have to write for the DMs Guild. And so now they're taking all their material and they're locking it behind the DMs Guild. I didn't even get to that problem, right? And it's not true. Just go make stuff, right? But, but worry about where you put your rights. The hidden, the the other hidden, the, the hidden cost of the DMs Guild is exclusivity. When you put a product up in the DMs Guild, that is the only place you can ever put it. Now, with something like Call for the Deep, Call from the Deep that, that JVC Perry made, he couldn't publish this anywhere else anyway because it's so packed with Wizards IP. It can only ever be there. But I've seen a lot of other big selling products that are up on the DMs Guild that didn't need to be there. They were writing about mythological creatures that have existed for hundreds of years. And yet they put it on the DMs Guild because they said, well, that's where D&D stuff goes. And now they can't make it in print. That means they can't do a Kickstarter for it. They can't break it up and make it rewards for Patreon. They can't put it up on Amazon. They can't put it up on any other platform. They can't turn it into an audiobook. They can't make video series about it, right? That it locks up their material when you put something on the DMs Guild, that's the only place it ever goes. And I'll give you an example where things are really weird. Why is it that the Matt Mercer gunslinger isn't in any of their books, right? Like it's the number one class that they made and have playtested forever. And it's not in their books. And the reason why is it's locked up in the DMs Guild. It's stuck there. It can never be pulled out again. That's a real problem. Imagine that. Imagine you're Matt Mercer, number one DM on the planet, most popular DM on the planet probably, right? And your material got locked up because you put it on the DMs Guild. Whoops, right? He could have put that material up anywhere. There was no Watsy, there was no Watsy IP in that. That was all Critical Role IP. That was his stuff, right? But he put it on the DMs Guild because it seemed like a good idea. And now it's locked there forever, right? It, it's exclusive content to the DMs Guild forever. And if he wants to put that in any other book, you're, you're, you can't remove it. You cannot remove your material from the DMs Guild and you have your rights. You can't have your rights back. There is no, I imagine you could try to do it, but Matt Mercer so far hasn't been able to. How well do you think you're going to do, right? 
They own it for good, says JVC, says JVC Perry. It is an exclusive perpetual license. Worst license agreement you can have in publishing. The exclusive perpetual license is terrible, right? Now, it's worth doing as long as you're packing your stuff full of Watsi IP because you can't do it anywhere, any, anywhere else anyway, right? Keith Baker, right? Keith Baker is making, he did Exploring Eberron. He did that other book recently. I forget the name of it that I previewed recently, right? I don't know. I don't know what the background is, but I can tell you, you would think, right? It would make sense that he would have those two classes in even the Watsi published book doesn't have them, right? Even in Explorer's Guide to Wildbound doesn't have them in there. And that was Watsi's own book. It seems like they could have done that. But I think I think DM guild rights are different. I think I think it's a whole different thing. So when I say Watsi IP, is that everything D&D 5e? No, I'm talking about, when I talk about Watsi IP, I'm talking about lore. I'm talking about the Forgotten Realms and Eberron and Ravenloft. I'm talking about certain monster types that they invented, like Beholders and Mind Flayers and Dracoliches, right? So uh, the, D the Gunslinger is on D&D Beyond. That is true. I don't know what kind of crazy deal created that. But I think that the DMs Guild, I think that D&D Beyond is under a similar lockdown license, which I think I talked about last week. So it's, a, it's intended as a platform for hobbyists. What happens when you turn into not a hobbyist and all your materials locked up behind the DMs Guild? So yeah. So proper nouns, right? Yeah, mostly, right. But you can write a lot. I, I've, I've got a couple things on the DMs Guild, but almost everything I write, I write outside the Guild and I own the rights. I can do whatever I want. I have audiobooks of it. I have it on Amazon. I have it on DriveThru. So when we talk about like as a Watsi product, if, if you make a 5e product, are you better selling it on the DMs Guild? Are you better selling it on DriveThru? That's not the right question. The right question is, are you better selling on a DMs Guild than everywhere else in the world? Because I don't sell it just on DriveThru. I sell on DriveThru. I sell on Amazon. I sell personally. I, have, I sell it directly on PayPal. I sell, I have audible versions of it. I can break it up into pieces and give it away on Patreon. I can do Kickstarters for it. I guarantee you that I'm going to make more money running Kickstarters first and then selling it as a book later than I would be able to put up on the DMs go by itself. Right? Almost certain. All right. So... That's mostly like a thing for the, for publishers. Uh, I was going to talk about morale in the DMG, but I'm going to save that for next week. Suffice this to say, the short the short preview of this morale in DMG is that I've heard a lot of people saying like, "Wow, it sucks that there's no morale in D and D or 5e," and the way they did it in first edition is really good, and you should use that. I think I've seen some videos where they talked about it and stuff like that. But the answer is, it there is morale, and it's very easy. It's a DC 10 Wisdom saving throw. So there it is. But well, I think, well, yeah, well, I, might, I might talk about that. I might talk about that next time. We'll, 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 we'll save that for next time. Let's see, any other questions? Can you put stuff in the DMs Guild after you've had it published in other places? I do not think so. No, you cannot do a Kickstarter. You cannot do a Kickstarter for something and then put it up in the DMs Guild. I think they specifically say you can't do it that way. Morale is in the DMG, yes. It's under the DM tools in the back, 250, page 240-something. So yeah, you were, you were really locked in. You cannot kickstart something and then put it on the DMs Guild. You cannot take DMs Guild stuff and put it anywhere else. It really locks it down. And that's what I'm talking about, a hidden cost, right? I don't think people really get it. Now, when people hear that and they do it anyway, and there's a bunch of people, this is something else that kind of bugs me. I guess I'm not quite done talking about this. Um, the, the other thing that bugs me is they've built a community of people that really, it's like this self-fulfilling community of people that love each other and write about, they all know each other. They all talk together all the time. There is a DM Guild uh, Discord server where they chat all the time. I happen to be part of it because I'm, uh, I have a couple DMs Guild things, but I mostly lurk. I actually haven't even lurked there in a long time. And they're, they, they're defensive about it, right? And they don't like to hear that it might not be the best place to write because they like it so much. And it's like, great. Like, I'm not telling anybody they shouldn't write there, especially if you're writing something like Call from the Deep, 
right? Call from the Deep is exactly the kind of product you should be writing there. Eberron, oh, what is it called? Where is it? The, the Eberron books, so Keith Baker's Eberron books, which are actually available in print. I think they work hard with wizards to make sure that they can put them in print. Those, you can't do them anywhere. He can't do those anywhere else, right? It's fantastic that he can. So the DMs Guild is great, absolutely great when you're using Wizards IP. If you're not using Wizards IP, I really don't recommend publishing there because there's other places to publish. You, right, that's where you're paying the other cost. It's not a hidden cost, but 20%, right? 20% of every product you sell is going to Wizards of the Coast for the IP. So if you're writing about Hydras, right? Like you're gonna do a whole book about Hydras and you're like, I'm gonna publish on the DMs Guild because there's about five people. You're paying Wizards of the Coast 20% for Hydras, which aren't their IP. Hydras have been around for, again, the, the, as mythological creatures for like more than 2,000 years, I think, right? For many millennia. You don't have to pay wizards 20% of a cover price to write about Hydras. You can just write about Hydras, right? You don't need to do anything at all. So, yeah. That's that's the, you know, if you're doing stuff that isn't Wizards IP, does that mean your stuff becomes Wizards IP? Not really. This is, Nameless Toby asks, if you're doing stuff that isn't Wizards IP, like of this mythological Hydra book, right? Would the Hydra, does that, you know, does that mean it becomes Wizards IP? No, it's still, this is where it's tricky. It's still your IP. You own it still. Wizards can't take it from you and do whatever they want with it. But in the same time, you, you signed essentially a, limited exclusive license, an exclusive perpetual license. I don't even know if I'm naming it right. Ancient Greece wants their 20%. Exactly, right? You signed an exclusive perpetual license with Wizards that it will not ever be published anywhere except the DMs Guild, which puts it in this really weird legal line. You still own it, but you can't do anything with it, right? Like it's still yours. So if Wizards said, hey, we love your Hydras and we want to put them in our book, they would have to come to you and pay you, right? And you'd have to license them to them in some other way. But if you write your Hydra book and you write it on the DMs Guild, you can't then say, oh, you know what? I want to expand it and do it something else with it. Or I want to sell it in this other platform. You can't do it, right? You have to make a whole new thing. You have to make a whole new product. And I think there are circumstances where people have created it. And I don't know what the weird limit is on like how close to, how close can a product be to the other one, Right? I don't know. There's weird stuff there. Main thing is my 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 big argument is if you want to, you know, if you're paying wizards twenty percent of your profits, use use it, use their IP, use that free artwork that they give you, and use the material, use the IP that they've got right around their stories, right around the Forgotten Realms, right around Eberron, right right around Ravenloft, right around the things that they use that, you know, take it, take it from them, right? They've built mountains of lore around these worlds. I argue that Forgotten Realms has more lore than any other world. I'm not, I think that's true. It's Star Wars is close, but you know, there's a lot of lore about Forgotten Realms and that is your material to use. JVC used it for, for Call from the Deep and so should you. That is going to be the end of the Lazy D&D talk show today. I want to thank everybody today for hanging out. Let me rant for an hour about stuff. I've ranted about a lot of stuff today. I hope you got some cool, cool, cool stuff out of it. I love D&D. You know, the main thing I want to get across. Boy, I love D&D. 
And it's been great fun talking to all of you today. For those of you watching on YouTube and on, on and listening on the podcast, thank you very much. If you want to support me, you can do so in four different ways. One, you can subscribe to the Sly Flourish newsletter. Two, you can uh, subscribe to me directly on YouTube and get new videos and stuff like that. Three, you can support me directly on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash and signing up and getting lots of cool 5e material for your game. And four, you can pick up any of my books. In particular, you can pick up Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master and the Lazy DMs Workbook. So thank you very much and have a great day. Twitch folks, don't leave. Stick around. <laughs>